Hello, welcome back to Anime on the Sea to Sky. It is a snow-laden morning on the west coast out here, considering that we don't really get a lot of opportunities to get snow on sea level right along the coast, considering how the climate has been able to move across not only the coast leading up the west side, but also up through the mountains and leading into the mainland. But whenever it does, it's kind of concerning for the amount of people who aren't used to the snow, considering barely anybody out here has winter tires, unless there are a select couple of few who consistently make trips up to the mountains or up the Sea to Sky Highway up out in the 99, considering that one of the nights ended up closing down one of the main bridges uh, leading into two of the separate districts uh, near uh, Surrey and New West. The fact that they actually had to close the bridge due to freezing rain leading right up to the temperature, leading to people essentially being stuck in gridlock traffic for more than five hours at a time. So I'm extremely glad I didn't necessarily have to work in on that day, but besides that, I would imagine that we'll only have one or two more kind of snow days leading in on the ground floor here, but at least we'll be able to chase the snow up through the Sea to Sky and up through Whistler and Cypress and Grouse and Sun Peaks. But besides that, in terms of anime-wise, there are going to be a couple of uh, pieces that are going to be lining up in terms of movie theaters in North America, one of which is going to be the Sword Art Online second progressive film. And that's going to be getting North American screenings on February 1st, and as well as being streamed on Crunchyroll as well once that ends up leading through. Considering how much I am a proprietor for getting people in to watch anime films in theaters, I'm not really, I'm not that much of a modern... SAO fan at this point, but I would imagine there are a lot of people that are, so if you're looking to catch that in theaters, then line that up once February comes and rolls around. In terms of video game-wise, we ended up getting more insight and more trailers into Fire Emblem Engage, and I really can't wait until that ends up popping up on January 20th, although I know I'm not going to be having the opportunity to play that, since I'm going to be away around the week that it's going to be popping up and debuting on the Switch. I know exactly what I'm going to be doing leading into the day ends of January and all of February, so at least I've got that planned out for the future, but then besides that, the Game Awards have actually been able to go through and add a lot of their nominees leading into the majority of the awards heading into the event, and at least for ones that are Japanese titles, you end up getting stuff like Final Fantasy XIV being the best ongoing game, Pokemon Legends Arceus being put in the best role-playing category, and in this case, also Cyberpunk Edge Runners, which is going to be battling for the best adaptation inside of a video game work. Now, as much as I would like to say, that is the easy pick for it, considering how just high-octane and engaging and chaotic and fun that whole series was. I love it to bits. Cyberpunk Edge Runners for me is like a 9, 9.5. The fact that it's still going to have to go up and fight against Arcane, which to me is just a 10 out of 10 show. Very rarely do I have the opportunity to give a show that kind of moniker, but it's just, it's fucking arcane, dude. That first season was ridiculously exceptional, and I don't think we're ever going to be seeing another video game adaptation try to match itself, and we'll have to just wait until the second season comes by. And even in the midst of stuff like Castlevania and Cyberpunk Runners, which are phenomenal challengers to come up and try and take place... I just don't think that anything deserves less than having Arcane take the number one spot. And I guess something that is of a surprise to no one, Makoto Shinkai's new film Suzume is already busting through records and making 1.88 billion yen in its first three days, becoming Shinkai's strongest three-day opening. And as of the time of this recording, it is still ranking number one three weekends into its debut, which is definitely something that's not or something that's totally to be expected at that point. I just don't think we're ever going to get a 
like overall grossing box office like Your Name did, considering that Your Name had absolutely no expectation leading into it. So regardless of the quality of Makoto Shinkai's works going forward, I still think the fact that it's going to hold strong at the top with Your Name is something that's not going to be broken anytime soon, but at least the investors leading the comics wave definitely know that anything revolving around Shinkai's name is going to be something that is laden with box office success. So that's something to be expected. Something that was also to be expected, but kind of doesn't take the pain away anymore, is that Disney is going to be consistently moving through and producing more and more shows and bringing more and more of their productions to their platform after they expanded their partnership with Kodansha with a lot of the manga that they produce as well at their publishing company. Which I'm not really a fan of, considering that we're just going to be getting the Netflix jail all over again with a different streaming service, different studio, different organization, different company, but it's all going to be the same shit. I'm probably still going to be the only one who has this sort of tin hat sort of conspiracy theory, but I do think that now that anime has officially hit the mainstream, that we are hitting a bubble, and at that point in time, it's going to burst considering that the demand for anime is consistently getting higher and higher, and the rate is becoming more and more frequent, whereas the amount of people getting into the industry and the amount of people that are actually making the shows are not expanding at a rate that could match all of the demand that's leading into it. So at some point in time, either in the late 20s or the early 30s, we're going to be hitting a point where it's just going to completely fall off and implode the industry as a whole. And I really hope that there's going to be some kind of recovery leading into that, or at least something that can level out the production that we've been consistently ramping up over the course of the past 10 years. But I don't think it's going to be slowing down anytime soon. And even though it's like, oh, great, that means there's going to be more money in injected into the anime industry. And that's going to be a net positive for everybody. It's like, yeah, it's going to be a net positive for everybody on the production committees. No, nothing for the studios, nothing for the people who are actually doing the work, nothing for anybody who is a part of the actual productions, any lower than the producers that just fork over the money to make the production happen. But in that case, it's just going to keep moving forward. And until, which is kind of one of the reasons why I hope that Chainsaw Man succeeds to the degree that it does, because MAPPA is 100% in on the production cost, and they are fully the production committee that lined up this show to happen. And so if more and more studios are able to see Chainsaw Man as a success and fully take on all of the risk and all of the committee work that they actually get to see a piece of the success that the shows end up bringing and it doesn't necessarily go off to everybody else where they just become standard contract workers. I really hope that they're the ones that actually get to see more and more of the cash that gets influxed because at this point, they ain't seeing jack shit. They're not going to be seeing any increased rates. They're not going to be seeing any of the royalties or any of the pieces that are going through because of course they're not a part of the production committees. But what exactly can they do? I just really hope that there are going to be more and more opportunities for the studios themselves, not the publishers, not the not the pricers, and not the companies that essentially like fork over a small amount of capital to reap in all the benefits. I just want to see the studios get more credit as well as more influx and capital and for the stuff that they are the ones that wholly do all the work. So I don't know. One can only hope. So initially, I was just going to make this an episode on... That's Tama Galaxy kind of franchise, considering that now we've got basically a OVA series, a anime series, and a movie all attributed to the universe inside of that. But then looking through the production staff and the original creative works of all of these uh, projects is that they're all coming back to one name in particular, and that's Tomohiko Morimi. And so he was the novelist that ended up writing the stories for the Tatami Galaxy. 
and the night is short walk on girl which was which is understandable because it's there was a lot of overlap between the characters and a lot of the themes and a lot of the comedy and a lot of the the events that happened specifically around that kyoto centric area but then to top it all off it's just he was also the one who wrote the novel on the sequel that we ended up getting to tommy time machine blues so he not only wrote that but he also wrote something that is near and dear to my heart which is the eccentric family as well as topping it all off with a movie that I had absolutely no expectations leading into. But once I was getting into it, the frenetic energy and the chaos and the kind of characters that enveloped its world, Penguin Highway was so similar in that vein, and it came as no surprise that he was the one that ended up writing that story as well. And so between four different studios and four different directors, all of these shows have been able to go through and leave a positive impact on not only myself, but on the industries and the studios that essentially keep theirs as mainstays for the projects that they've been able to go through and create over the past decade. And so I guess I'll go through and have the opportunity to just gush about how all of these series are just favorites in their own rights. But I guess we'll get off on the right foot by talking about the main series in this case, which was the, the Tatami Galaxy. And so I recently rewatched it because the first time I ended up watching this was in first year of university. And none of the lessons really stuck considering that I was, like, really wishy-washy and not doing enough, I felt, inside of my own university degree that I didn't necessarily feel like I spent the best time doing or expanding and gaining enough knowledge to help me once I ended up leaving it. But it just never really settled, even though the show itself, I thought, was an amazing piece. It had, to me, it still has, like, one of the best endings to any show that I've seen leading into the rest of it. Well, all the cacophony and all of the loops and everything that the show built up towards the end crescendos into this like final piece that fills in all the blanks that you really felt like were missing and does more than enough of a good job wrapping up the story in a nice neat bow. Which is kind of one of the only things I can say negatively about uh, Tatami Time Machine Blues, but we'll end up getting to that. Because I really did enjoy the work that they were able to go through. I'm pretty sure this would have been the first show I ever watched that was directed by Masaki Iwasa, which would lead into a very good relationship between me and almost every single other show that he has created since then. But it was definitely more than enough of a good watch leading into university and coming back around and re-watching it now, basically eight years later, after university, after the rest of it, it definitely seems like it would be a good show for somebody to watch in between, kind of like if they're at a crossroads and they don't necessarily know what choice to make because in the search for a rose-colored life, nothing is really stable. Nothing is... It, a rose-colored life is just a fantasy. It is a cacophony of colors of rainbow and gray and everything in between that's a mix of just all of these events and relationships and people and places and things that come together to essentially, like, form what are the informative years of your life. And it does do a really good job with having a cast that's all chaotic in their own right but they're more than enough diverse to keep moving the story forward and to try and try and try to get the main character to accept his growth but he's never able to do so and continuously gets himself caught in the same loop over and over and over and over again to try and teach him the same lesson that he continues to reject every single time and even though it's as simple as making one small action it seems like the grandest canyon that he has to traverse in order to at least move forward with his life. And it definitely seems like I'm in a little bit more of a rut like that myself, but I don't necessarily feel like it's something that needs to be 
expanded upon based on how simple the message is, which is just to go and live life and make decisions and make mistakes, but don't become stagnant. Don't move forward and stay in the same rut for more than years and years and years. Because at the end of the day, moving forward is always better than staying stagnant. And so the only thing that kind of led into Tatami Time Machine Blues, which I kind of didn't necessarily enjoy, is that they're basically, they, they almost did the exact same thing, where it's basically a movie that they uh, ended up creating as the sequel to Tatami Galaxy, but it was also like, wait, so you're telling me that he didn't end up getting with uh, Akashi? towards the end of it and he still has to move forward and he still has to make that one decision but the way that they're able to go through and bring all the characters that you know and love back together for like one more entourage after eight years was still more than enough of a fun way to conclude the story and to remind you again that he still ends up you know having the opportunity to go through and have the opportunity to spend and ask Akashi out but to be fair Everything leading up to it, just the entire time machine that this show was based off of, or this movie is based off of, like, it, the way that they're able to go through and, like, have so much fun and so much chaos and still have the opportunity to go through and make it all fit together, because time loops and time travel is always such a ridiculously complex and difficult story trope to inject into your script, considering that you always have to make everything line up and make sure everything doesn't contradict itself to the point where it unravels the story itself and and poses more questions than answers. But thankfully, considering like how well Marimi is actually able to move forward and consistently have a through line to every narrative beat that happens inside of the story, it's no surprise that everything fit well enough alone to try and wrap it all up consistently as well as it did with the original series. So I'm really thankful that at that point, it was still more than enough of an enjoyable experience to bring everybody together and have one last hurrah, not only for the show itself, but for the air conditioner that leads through the summer of this incredibly trying and desolate show. So now for this movie, it's really hard to explain the continuity between it because it takes place in the same universe as the Tatami Galaxy, and considering it's done by the same director, Masaki Wasa, he slips in characters not only from his other works that have nothing to do with the story as a whole, but also characters that ended up coming through in the Tatami Galaxy and make them main players inside of the narrative of this story. But The Night of Short Walk-On Girl is easily one of my favorite movies for it. And it's, it's weird because you can still have a really good time with this movie, having not seen a single bit of the Tatami Galaxy, even though two of its main characters from the original Tatami story end up becoming bit players in for the rest of it, considering that the other two main characters here are the ones that take up most of the screen time and most of the show. But it is still a phenomenal time. It's like every ridiculous night out and every single chaotic mess that happens at the end of a bar crawl and meeting all the new people that you never would have expected to have in your life and the chaotic events that pop up out of nowhere to throw you in another direction that you wouldn't have never expected but considering that at the end of the day everybody is all connected and everybody else has the opportunity to not only have fun but to do the things that they've wanted to do in the midst of all the chaos that leads through into this movie it was an incredibly fun and enjoyable time to lead all of this through and, it, and same deal have a satisfying conclusion that essentially leaves more than enough open to the rest of our characters to at least expand upon this beyond the world that exists inside of the movie 
But you know they're going to be happy, and mostly that's all you can hope for at the end of these. And it was really interesting going back and rewatching the Tatami Galaxy, considering that all of these stories are written uh, by Tomohiko Morimi, but he ends up, like, slipping his own book. So he slipped a novel of the Nightshare Walk-On Girl inside one of the Tatami Galaxy episodes back in 2010, and it was just in one of the interviews that Masaki Iwasa had, it was definitely one of those things where it was just, hey, so you included one of these novels into your story, considering that it was related to one of the cycles and one of the plots that was happening inside of the story, but Masaki Iwasa never envisioned that he was going to uh, keep moving and end up adapting that book as well moving forward. He thought it was only going to be a one-time thing, but he ended up finally having the opportunity to go through and give it its own life seven years later through his own studio, Science Saru, instead of Madhouse, who, who was the studio that ended up doing it all the way back. And of course, Science Saru also did the most recent adaptation as well, Time Machine Blues, but this one wasn't essentially done by Masaki Iwasa. Instead, it was done by Shingo Natsume, who is a ridiculously well-set director, considering that everybody knows him from the first season of One Punch Man. He was the director for that back at Madhouse. Um, he also ended up doing Sunny Boy, which was also a like a ridiculous art outfit which was also a ridiculous art house film coming out of the madhouse itself. But considering that, oh, well, why would he have any credit or any opportunity to go through and do the sequel to Tatami Galaxy? Well, at that point, he was working with Yuasa back on the original Tatami Galaxy as a storyboarder and an episode director. He just wasn't the chief director at the time. So if there was anybody else who could revitalize and reintroduce the world itself keeping into a similar vein as the regular series was 12 years before this was made, then Shigo Natsume is definitely a fantastic director to put him to put or to put him into that role. And he more than enough was able to keep up the same kind of chaos, the same kind of uh, dynamic work and relationships between all the characters intermingling between all of the chaotic events that are happening in the midst of it. It was really funny and it was really fun. And I'm really glad that at least they were able to keep some guys inside of the wheelhouse to keep the story going and make it seem different in its own way, but more than enough familiar to those who had watched it all those years ago. So uh, what even... What year was this? It was 2018. I don't know why. I, I think it, it was 2018 was the year where basically I was getting into seeing more anime films in general. I had the opportunity back in 2017 to finally experience my first couple of anime film cinema experiences. I mean, going through to watch the Kizumonogatari films, to watch Lure Over the Wall, who is also done by Mamasaki Wasa, as well as Science Saru. The first My Hero Academia movie, which was literally just Die Hard in Nakatomi Plaza, but instead this was at, like, a science fair slash amusement park, but it was essentially just Die Hard with superpowers into it, which was an absolutely phenomenal experience. It was the first shonen movie that I was watching with a whole group, and the energy was just contagious. I know that there are a lot of people that don't necessarily like people talking or engaging with movies, and that works, and I totally agree with them 99% of the time. Except if this is going to be a shonen action flick, everybody has the right to get on their feet. Everybody has the right to fucking scream and laugh and cheer and cry and, like, get 
all up into the experience and that was definitely the first time that I had the opportunity to go through and see or see that for myself and the first My Hero Academia movie was just a phenomenal experience to see everybody else just come together and enjoy being in the moment in the atmosphere that everybody was bringing to the table. And then on top of that we ended up getting Machia and DBZ Broly to add to the mix as everything was leading into 2018 but then I finally ended up having the opportunity to go through and watch Penguin Highway. And like I said before, it was just one of those movies where I was in the midst of trying to watch every single anime movie, which was finally coming on the cusp near the 2010s, since different studios like Fathom Events and Eleven Arts were trying to get the opportunity for like larger cinema chains to just give small theater windows to have the opportunity for us to watch it all. And Penguin Highway was one of them. And I didn't really feel like there was a lot going on with it. Because I didn't really know Studio Colorido too much. I didn't know the director at all, considering that I had not seen a single work of his just adapted to the rest of it. He was mostly a movie director to top it all off, so it definitely is understandable for the rest of it. But seeing that back in 2018, and very recently seeing uh, Drifting Home, which was also directed by him... He did a phenomenal job just taking the world itself, which is the same deal. It's still a chaotic group, but mostly this is going to be focusing around children instead of all of the young adults or the straight-up adults that we have to focus on for one of the next works. But it was specifically downgrading the ages of all the other characters, but it still felt like all the characters inside of the cast still felt like they were inside of Tomohiko's world because all of them have these great dynamics and relationships, which of course are very simple when it comes to kids, but the way that they bounce off of each other, especially with the dialogue that no other 10-year-old is supposed to be fluent with at that point, is more than enough engaging and hilarious at the same time to just keep you invested into a story where, like everybody else, had absolutely no expectations for. Nobody knew the director, Colorido didn't have a lot of series or movies under their belt, but it was all connected at least by one man. It was connected by Tomohiko, and the way that he's able to construct this movie where it's basically just sitting on the side of realism with a lot of these kids trying to figure out a way to make their summer vacation a lot more lively, but is completely thrown into flux when a mysterious not necessarily alien, but a foreign object goes and starts creating chaos inside of their town. And I'm going to give it to Studio Colorido. The film looks gorgeous. It is beautiful. Everything leading in through the chase scene towards the end of the movie, how all of the 2D and 3D assets, especially with how the motion of the camera is able to go through and get you invested in the world, that is definitely like what Hiryasa Ishida is able to do with directing this movie because he knows how to frame shots. He knows how to storyboard and he knows how to set up a lot of the scenes that are going to be leading in to get the most impact depending on what kind of emotion you're looking for. And so at the end of the day, even though it is not related to any of the works that Tomohiko has done, it is completely in its own right and in its own world and in its own piece, I would still highly recommend Penguin Highway to anybody who is interested in seeing just a movie that you will never know what to expect. And so now the final piece of the puzzle to add between all of Tomohiko's adapted works is that we'll lead into another show that I ended up rewatching recently, but this would have been back in quarantine, so about a year and a half ago, but that is The Eccentric Family, or Uchoten Kazoku. I really loved this, same deal. 
I watched this the same year as I did the original Tatami Galaxy. I watched this back in 2013 when it was airing, and not a lot of people came through and watched it as much. There wasn't as there wasn't as much of an interest or hype surrounding this show in particular, considering that it was like a really odd, kind of the same deal as uh, Penguin Highway in the sense that the creatures that inhabit this world are more human and try to blend in with the human world that leads it. So you end up having the Tengu, you have the Tanuki, and you just have regular people. But all of these try to interact and live next to each other, even though there isn't a lot of... There's not really conflict going between the rest of them. It's just everybody inside, through their tragedies and through their other experiences, trying to just live their own lives in a world that is still surrounded by magic and conflict and strife, and mostly interpersonal and interfamilial. That doesn't necessarily happen, but the best thing about this show is that they're all, regardless of what creature you are inside of the show, they're all just people. Deeply flawed people that want to try and either live up to expectations, seek what they believe is rightfully theirs, try to survive in the middle of a conflict between three other people that shouldn't necessarily have any time to be in conflict, but it just seems that everybody wants to at least go and enjoy life to the fullest, which is just the mantra of one of the late characters of this entire show. And everybody who was involved in this down at PA Works really brought this to life, and I didn't necessarily like the opening theme to the show because I thought it was, like, way too unnecessarily loud at the time, but it just sums up the entire ethos of the show entirely. And I will admit that Benten is very much in the... If for a modern take, Benten is very much in a similar vein to Makiba inside of Chainsaw Man in the sense that she is very... She is mostly quiet. She is lowbrow, has an icy, vacant, deadpan stare that she can either be completely stone-faced and make you terrified, or she can bring her eyes down and grin maniacally to the point where you are literally just shitting your pants, to the point where she's also just incredibly laid back and she will wrestle a whale for no fucking reason. She is easily, like, one of my favorite female characters inside of the medium, considering how much of a chaotic piece that she is able to play herself as in the middle of all of these interpersonal relationships and as she is related and a part of almost every other part that happens inside of this show. But she's also human, very much so in the second season in the sense that she is very flawed. She also isn't necessarily trying to achieve something, she just wants to survive and live even though all of the things that she was taught as a kid leading into a teenager and into a young adult is the only reason that she's able to survive and thrive in the first place, regardless of the amount of people that brought her there anyways. But Benten is still... <laughs> Benten. Not... not <laughs> Why the fuck was that the first thing that came to mind? No, Benten, she is a force. She is a monolith inside of the world that doesn't necessarily give her the time of day, but she is the one that is normally holding all the cards, and at the time, sometimes she doesn't really know what to do with them, but she has power. She is a threat to anybody that tries to cross her, and to top it all off, she is just a bombshell. Oh, she is phenomenal. She is very much like that femme fatale sort of deal, and the same deal as Fuji 
In the same way as Fujiko Mine, like, she is just a terror to go through. You do not want to get on her bad side, but you kind of just hope that she gets help at some point. And you just want everybody in this show not to get help, but to just live and have fun together and just throw away with the two conflicts that, some of which are garnered, and they are, which to be fair, some of which they definitely deserve it, but... You just want to see, because when everybody's having fun together and everybody is just living up in the moment and trying to go through and have the opportunity to bring everybody else into this family unit and just coincide and just live life. But I guess that's just the idiot blood in me. I don't know. Still a phenomenal show. The old, I, I definitely prefer the first season to the second season, even though each of them are only 12 episodes each for the eccentric family. The only thing that I don't like because the second season was knocked up to be even better than the first, but then it falls back onto kind of the same story beats that the first season ended up having, which didn't, which kind of took away from the ending as a whole, which was kind of unfortunate. Regardless, I really enjoyed coming back to all of these series and having the opportunity to relive them and relearn a couple of things that they were able to go through that flew over my head when I was still an idiot back in the early 2010s and I'm still an idiot now but you just got to keep going learn from your experiences and have the opportunity fail enough that you can pick yourself up and learn from them to make sure it doesn't happen again use that idiot blood and live life to the fullest but so if there's anything to take away from this episode it's like anything that is related to Marimi Tomohiko any of these works that I ended up pointing out today all of them get a glowing recommendation. Everybody should go and have the opportunity to watch this at their own leisure and just add it to the list because at the very least, every single one of these series is a fun, enjoyable time. Minus uh, the original Tatami Galaxy because that's, that's a lot more contemplative and something that leads into trying to bring everybody onto the same plane and learning from your mistakes. But everything outside of Tatami Galaxy, just such an enjoyable experience and everybody would have a fun time and anybody would have a fun time watching any of these for the fact that it's just such a positive, uplifting feel whenever the characters themselves involved have the opportunity to, at the end of the day, win back the joy that they were trying to find at the beginning of their journeys, which thankfully, a lot of the time, they end up doing. And on that note, I will try and get a couple episodes out because there's going to be a long stretch leading into both December and January where I'm going to be away, but I will at least have that opportunity to go through and bring my stuff with me and maybe at least catch up on a lot of my backlog and give the, me the opportunity to actually get a lot more episodes out more than the time that I've got. But I said that at the beginning, but I said that at the beginning of October and we all know how that went. So I don't know, tentatively I'll move forward on that one. Okay, cheers. Thanks. Have a good one. Mm -hmm.